All right, welcome to the British History Podcast. My name is Jamie, and this is episode 196, Vikings and Mercs and Franks. Oh my. This show is free and independent due to member support. And as thanks for helping keep the community going, I offer members-only content, including extra episodes and rough transcripts. Here's a sample of what the members are listening to right now. We've been talking for months about Scandinavia, and one of the recurring themes is how there's nothing uniform about it. How even their gods will change from village to village. We can draw rough outlines and make inferences, but if you look closely at any particular community, you might find a huge amount of disparity. And that might leave you wondering whether that was true for languages as well. After all, you're dealing with a massive swath of territory that encompasses Denmark, Gotland, and most of Norway and Sweden. Further, the Scandinavians spread into other regions, such as Orkney and the Shetlands. So what happened with their languages there? Well, many scholars suspect that, unlike with many other cultural matters, much of Scandinavia shared a common language from the 8th to 11th century. And many times... They just call this language Common Scandinavian, which feels a bit like D&D to me, where you're speaking the common tongue, but whatever. Now, there are some problems with this. And one big one is that this was a period of immense change for the West and also for the North. Languages were changing rapidly all over the place. And as we talked about in earlier episodes, the North dealt with larger degrees of isolation than much of the rest of Europe. And as a consequence, the idea of linguistic drift within these little pockets of civilization isn't exactly out of the question. All it takes, really, is a couple families to start speaking in a different manner, and provided you're isolated enough, all of a sudden, things start shifting. And yet, you have some scholars who think that the language was uniform. Why? If you'd like to hear more and are interested in supporting the show and helping us out, you can do so over at thebritishhistorypodcast.com. And thank you very much to Bevan, Alastair, and Joshua for signing up already. When we left off last week, we spoke about King Athelbert's ascension to the throne of Wessex in 860, and how, despite the insistence of the chroniclers that his rule was marked by peace and tranquility, on that same year, we had records of a Viking raid that struck at the heart of the Kingdom of Wessex, in Winchester. That was a big deal. The Vikings had managed to successfully loot the wealthy town, and then they might have even pushed into the Berkshire Downs. So that's terrible news for the Kingdom of Wessex. But the success of the raids were also slowing them down. That loot was heavy, and what's the point of a victory if you can't do a bit of celebrating? And this delay gave Elderman Osric time to raise the warriors of Hampshire to his banner. And Elderman Athelwolf of Berkshire, who was Mercian, time to raise his war bands. Now, Elderman Osric was no stranger to fighting Viking bands. He had long history with the Northmen, having defeated a Danish army in Dorset over a decade earlier. And under his and Athelwolf's leadership, the combined forces of Berkshire and Hampshire swooped down upon the Vikings before they had a chance to reach their ships and escape. It was likely a great victory for the Anglo-Saxons, a feather in the cap for those two eldermen, and a glorious moment for Wessex. I imagine for the warbands, it would have felt pretty awesome. 
But feeling awesome is different from feeling peaceful and tranquil, which is what the Chronicle is trying really hard to convince us was the state in the South. So, why the contradiction? Why are we hearing about war and being told of peace? To start, the chroniclers were writing around 30 years after these events. That doesn't sound like a lot, but when we read these accounts, we're contending not just with the problems of memory and the issues that come with political pressure being put upon those who create the written record, but we're also dealing with the fact that we're likely reading of the events that the chroniclers and their benefactors felt were important in the 890s, rather than what was seen as important at the time. And that 30-year gap is critical. For example, if you were living in 1950 and writing a history of 1920s Germany, you would zoom in on Hitler like a magnet. I mean, obviously you need to talk about what Hitler was doing in the early 1920s. But if you were living in 1922 and writing an account of 1920s Germany, would you have the foresight to realize that the leader of a fringe political party would go on to become such a dominant force in global politics? I don't think I would. Hindsight can really influence your perspective. And what we're likely reading here are accounts of what the chroniclers felt were important after 30 years of collective hindsight. And even then, these records are based upon memories that have had 30 years to change in the minds of the scribes. And on top of that, we only hear of the events that were authorized to be recorded. So it's the same old story. Even though we have a written account of this period, the account is dodgy. And actually, my co-producer is convinced I'm going to give you trust issues if I keep focusing on the various ways these records are questionable. But simply put, if you read the Chronicle, it will tell you that the reign of King Athelbert was a period of tranquil peace. However, based upon the recorded battles in the state of Europe at the time, I have a hard time buying it. And in my defense, so do many scholars. At best, when we're told of peace in the Chronicle, I believe our scribes were talking about tranquility between the brothers and stability among the noble families of Wessex. They were speaking about how power was transferred peacefully and how no one attempted to overthrow King Athelbert. That certainly is quite an achievement, and considering how upset Alfred was over Athelbald's rebellion against their father, my guess is that the stability of the court under the House of Wessex was a major point of focus for how these records were written. So, the accounts of an internally peaceful Wessex are probably accurate. And I suspect that was intended to be the main theme for these entries. But Wessex doesn't live in a bubble. And what about external issues? What about the Vikinger bands going, you know, a Viking? Well... That's sort of six of one, half a dozen of the other. It's possible that there were attacks on Wessex that were simply left out of the record. Most scholars tend to agree that we're only getting a partial view of the raids, and that many went unrecorded. But on the other hand, it's also possible that the scribes were telling the truth, and that the raids were slowing down in Wessex. If the Vikings were hammering Pictland, or East Anglia, or any other unlucky part of the island then it might mean that there was less pressure on Wessex. If this is what was happening, we would likely never hear of it due to the sparse records in those areas. 
Another option for us to consider is that there may have been fewer Vikinger crews in this period due to economic factors. The thing is that Charles the Bald was back in Francia. And rather than doing the smart thing in defending the region from raiders that were once again streaming into his kingdom, he was hiring them, as were many of the Frankish nobles. Yep, once again the Carolingians were having a family spat in public and hiring Vikingers to help them sort it out. So, it's entirely possible that raiders who would normally come to Wessex might have been instead hiring themselves out as mercenaries to a bunch of short-sighted Frankish nobles. Overall, it's hard to say exactly what was going on after Athelbert's ascendancy to the throne of Wessex. But, while it is possible that Wessex was largely peaceful, I don't think we can absolutely trust the record. So these factors are something for you to consider as we continue the story. But let's talk about those Vikinger mercenaries in Francia, because they tie into what we're talking about here with the Peace of Wessex. Professor Richard Abels has a fascinating take on this entire thing, and one that I find very convincing. I'll try and summarize it as best as I can for you. So, Charles the Bald had a hell of a lot of problems in Francia, and among them was a band of Vikings that built a fortress at the Seine. These Vikingers were conducting raids deep into the countryside, and generally causing all the sorts of trouble that a large band of pirates will do if you leave them alone. So... Charles hired an army to go and deal with them. A Vikinger army, who at the time were conveniently camped on the Somme. Then Charles ordered this band of Vikings to attack the other band of Vikings that were camped on the Seine. And in case you're wondering why he was worried about a Vikinger band on the Seine, but not a Vikinger band on the Somme, take a look at these two rivers on a map. The Seine leads right to Paris. And if we've learned anything about Charles, it's that he always, always puts his own needs first. So, based upon access to Paris, and thereby Charles, he decided that there would be a good group of Vikings and a bad group of Vikings. And then he paid them to fight. Now, for those of you who are really into Roman history, this story should start to sound a bit familiar because it's a little bit like how Rome in the late imperial era liked to handle their issues with barbarians. And it was a method that, how can I put this politely? It was a method that had limited success. For example, you might have heard of a man named Alaric who famously sacked Rome. Well, before he did that, Alaric had been one of the barbarian mercenaries who was hired to defend Rome. Now, obviously, the way Rome behaved towards non-Roman citizens didn't exactly engender a great deal of loyalty, so I think you probably can make a case that they got exactly what they were asking for. But the point is that Charles was engaging in a tried and tested strategy. And the trouble was that almost all the tests confirmed that it was a terrible idea. I'm sure that Baldwin would have told Charles as much, but these Viking mercenaries were hired in 859, which was before Baldwin and Judith got married, and long before Charles grudgingly accepted the fact that Baldwin wasn't going anywhere. So, at least right now, Charles was on his own. And unfortunately for Francia, Charles wasn't very good at his job. Consequently, the deal was struck, and the good Vikinger band from the Somme agreed to fight, provided, of course, that they'd be paid 3,000 pounds of silver. And Charles saw that as not that big of a deal, 
So he agreed to their terms and immediately applied a hefty tax on merchants, landowners, farmers, and even the church. And then he probably gave himself a high five because his tax policy was so stringent that he would be able to raise far more than he needed to actually pay his new Viking army. So he could just pocket the rest. However, taxes take time to collect. And in the meantime, his mercenaries engaged in some extracurricular activity. Naturally, they couldn't raid Francia anymore since they were now working for the king. So instead, they packed up their ships and decided to kill some time across the channel. Remember that raid at Winchester I told you about earlier? That was them. As you know, it didn't go so well. So they returned to Francia, and this time they were being led by a man named Wayland. Once back, they set about the task they took from Charles and besieged the Vikinger fortress on the Seine. Wayland must have been a leader with a great deal of renown because he attracted a lot of followers. And during this siege, a further 60 ships arrived to join his army. This thing was growing fast. And meanwhile, Charles was taxing like crazy, presumably in hopes that providing food and provisions would keep his mercenary army from looting the countryside. But either way, this was a pretty rough deal for the local peasants. You either had pirates nicking your stuff, or you had the king's tax collector grabbing your stuff to give to those same pirates, and probably keeping some of it for himself. It was a bad situation, and tensions in the region were rising. But finally, after a long siege, the Sen Vikings offered to surrender to Wayland. They promised him 6,000 pounds of gold and silver, double what Charles was paying them. And they also promised that they would join his army. Not that they would go home to the north, not that they would surrender to Charles the Bald, they agreed to join Wayland and be a part of his army. That was not good. I mean, it's not surprising. Charles really should have seen this coming. If you read Roman history, you would have seen that almost this exact same thing happened in the late Roman Empire when they tried to outplay the Vandals and Goths. Or he could have talked to his former in-laws, and he might have learned that, according to legend, the Britons lived to regret the deals they made with their Anglo-Saxon mercenaries. Whether they go by the name pirates, Vikingers, or military contractors, mercenaries throughout history have shown themselves to be unpredictable and dangerous. But there always seem to be people who think that this time will be different. And those people are always so surprised when it isn't when their mercenaries turn out to be, well, mercenary. And on an unrelated note, someone really should send Congress a few history books. Anyway, Charles should have seen this coming, but he didn't. And predictably, it wasn't long before this new super Vikinger army raided all around Francia. Some scholars suspect that they may have still been loyal to Charles, and that he was giving them the green light on certain targets that either didn't matter to him or suited him politically. For example, he might have allowed them to strike Ma in order to give his son, Louis the Stammerer, a warning of what could come his way if he didn't settle down. Turns out that his son was currently being a bit rebellious himself. No one liked Charles. Either way, though, the Sen Vikings were now far larger than they were before. And as a bonus, the Franks had paid for the privilege. This whole situation was so bad that the nobles and even the peasantry were on the verge of launching into a full-blown rebellion. 
no matter which way you slice it, Charles had overplayed his hand. And even if Wayland's Vikinger army was acting under the auspices of the crown, it was now creating more problems than it solved. If he didn't want to lose his kingdom again, Charles would have to act, regardless of the circumstances. So he did the unthinkable. And instead of hiring a third Vikinger army to fight the first and second ones, he raised a Frankish army that would be loyal to him. And it worked. They were able to cut Wayland off from the sea and forcibly eject the raiders out of the kingdom. That happened in 862, two years after King Athelbert took the throne. So, for two years, there very well might have been a lot of peace in Wessex, because the Vikingers might have all been in Francia having the time of their lives. But now, they were forced out. All at once. In huge numbers. We're talking about a massive fleet. Honestly, we're talking about fleets. Multiple. The number of crews that would have been pouring into the channel is staggering to consider, especially when you take into account how much damage even a few Vikinger ships could cause. After leaving Francia, this huge Vikinger army broke up into smaller bands, where they sold their service to other nobles in the area, including the nobles of Brittany and Anjou, who were currently struggling for power against one another. And don't forget, we aren't talking about a people here. There's not a single identity. Nor are we talking about a proper army. When we talk about Vikinger bands, or even fleets, it isn't like we have a group of warriors who are from the same area, trained together, and all hold the same creed. These are pirates. Many times, they're multicultural. Sure, the Chronicle and others shorthand them to Danes, or Northmen, or Vikings, or Pagans. But those terms are probably better applied to their leaders, rather than to their crews as a whole. Because by the mid-ninth century, which is where we're at right now, going a Viking wasn't an activity. It was a profession. Their lives likely had a lot in common with buccaneers in the age of piracy. Their loyalty lie not with king and country, but with themselves. Their homes were wherever they could find treasure. They were unbound. Some would sign on with European nobles as mercenaries. Some would form their own crews. Some would join the Varangian Guard. Some would join with one of the many exiled Scandinavian nobles who found themselves on the losing end of a dynastic feud. The opportunities for a Vikinger in the 9th century were endless. And many scholars agree that people from all walks of life and cultures would find their way onto those ships. And the trouble with such a varied collection of people with so many opportunities around, and without any universal cultural pressure to enforce fealty, is that the usual ties that bind a group together and enforce hierarchy would be absent. Your reason to stay with a crew was purely based on whether or not it was suiting your own personal needs. A captain's only real job security would lie in his success. Mutiny was always around the corner, waiting. After all, what good was a captain if he couldn't bring the crew treasure and success? So when we see these armies randomly breaking up and reforming under different leadership, sometimes with members of the same army appearing on opposite sides of a different conflict, just like we saw with Wayland's army, it isn't surprising, nor is it an aberration. 
this rapid change in leadership and fealty within a Vikinger army is baked into the cake. And we're going to see a lot more of these people in the near future. But while this episode has mostly been dealing with foreign factors that likely contributed to the ebb and flow of Viking activity within Wessex, don't think that I've forgotten about Wessex, or Alfred for that matter. As we talked about last week, Alfred had come down with a malady that was making athletics a bit more difficult than it used to be. And the thing about immunodiseases that strike the GI is that they don't tend to be constant. Instead, he would have good days and bad days. The worst days would generally come when he was under a lot of stress, which, given the state of Wessex, was probably every day. But the inconsistent nature of his illness probably had a deep impact on the increasingly spiritual Alfred. He'll be here one day, horrific for a week, and then maybe disappear completely for a bit, only to return with a vengeance, probably after some stressful event. What was this? Was it divine punishment? The story we talked about last week, the one about how Alfred prayed for the disease because he was disturbed by his own sexual urges, is almost certainly a myth retroactively created to bolster Asser's assertion of Alfred's piety. But it isn't out of the question that, in response to coming down with an unexplained illness like this, Alfred might have been looking to the heavens for an explanation. That seems to be completely in keeping with what we know of who he was. So at this point, he was a young teen, reading ecclesiastical documents, and likely trying to figure out a way to end this pain. I personally empathize with this part of Alfred's life, because I know that chronic immunodisorders are no joke. I've got one. And until I found a medication that kept it a little bit at bay, I just had to live with constant pain and very little sleep. I imagine that, as Alfred's disorder progressed, he dealt with similar issues. Scientific studies tell us that chronic pain and sleeplessness causes depression, exhaustion, and, this isn't a scientific term, surliness. And I suspect that Alfred, on particularly bad weeks, was pretty damn surly. And then on other weeks, he probably felt hopeless, and like there was no escape from whatever it was that was tearing him apart on the inside. If we're being open here, and I guess we are since I just shared some medical history with you, I wouldn't be shocked if Alfred's piety was linked to his disorder. Very few things can cause pain like your own immune system attacking your body. And he might have wanted to find meaning in that suffering. Though, it appears that he wasn't content to only look to God for help. Based upon his records from later in life, he also seems to have been looking for a medicinal cure. Meaning is great and all, but if he could feel better, well, that would be tops. His illness also forced him into a situation where his attentions had to be directed away from hunting and towards less active pursuits. So he began to read voraciously, educating himself. Now, something that comes up among scholars when discussing Alfred's education is whether his readings were focused upon war. He was a prince, after all, and war was part of a prince's duties. And we know that Alfred would grow up to become a capable war leader, so it does make one wonder what his preparations for war were like. Now, hunting, of course, would be one way to train a young athling for war, since it would build their endurance, their proficiency with certain types of weapons, and it would make them less likely to be spooked by the sight of blood and gore. But as for formal training in war, 
that's somewhat more difficult to assess. His illness would have resulted in him placing more attention in formal education rather than what he would call, quote, manly pursuits, end quote. So, you know, things like practicing with a weapon, going out hunting, riding a lot, things that really would have upset his lower GI. And my guess is that he would still have done some of that, just not as much as others because of how sick he was. But while he probably couldn't consistently train for war in a physical way, maybe he was reading about it. The military bible for this period was the De Re Militari, which was written by Vegetius and basically translates to Concerning Military Matters. And frankly, if you wanted a scholarly look at how to engage in war during this period, this book was for you. Now, Vegetius was writing in the late Roman period, but his books were still around, and essentially, he was medieval Europe's Sun Tzu. And several major European figures of this era had a copy of his writings. Honestly, Vegetius would have been an ideal way to teach a bookish atheling about military tactics. And we do know that it was in the general region. In fact, we know that a copy of Vegetius's treatise was in Charles the Bald's library, which begs two questions. One, did Charles the Bald not read it? Because if he did, I think he would have been better at his job. And second, did Alfred have access to a copy of this book as well? Well, probably not. As amazing as it would be to have Alfred learning how to engage in war from late Roman writers, we don't have any records of Vegetius being present in Anglo-Saxon Britain until about the 11th century. And given the fact that Alfred tended to like to translate Latin documents into the vernacular, especially documents that would be useful to his family, you could bet that he would have translated Vegetius if he had a copy on hand. But we don't have any records of such a translation, so he probably didn't have access to it. Instead, Alfred likely learned of war from the various ealdormen and nobles who were in King Athelbert's court, and also from the experience of being present when war plans were drawn up. And this last part might seem strange to you, but he might have also picked up some aspects of war from his study of the semi-mythological biographies of saints, and from their heroic English poems that he was familiar with, and also from the Bible. Now you very well might be thinking, ah, oh, come on, what can you possibly learn from some poems and from the stories of the Bible? And it certainly would have been less than reading something like The Art of War or The Book of the Five Rings. But there still were things to be gleaned. And more importantly, this was the lens through which people like Alfred viewed the world. War, especially war with the pagan Northmen, wasn't just a military matter. It was a religious matter. And so stories of the struggles between the faithful and the unbelievers would have likely carried a great deal of weight. Or at the very least, provided a bit of extra credit reading for the young prince in between listening to war councils or asking pointed questions to eldermen and thanes. But based on his actions later in life, I suspect that he was learning as much as he could. And Alfred would need to be a quick study. Because next week, we're going to continue our march towards an all-out war that will change the future of Britain. 
If you have any questions, comments, or concerns, you can reach me at thebritishhistorypodcast at gmail.com. And you can also join us on Twitter. We're at British Podcast. And I've been getting some great questions for the Q&A that we're going to do on our 200th episode. But I always have room for some more. So if you have any questions, shoot them over to me at thebritishhistorypodcast at gmail.com or tweet them to me at British Podcast. All right. Thanks for listening. <laughs>